Welcome to the Business Power Hour, hosted by Deb Creer. Join us as Deb talks with her guests, experts in their fields, as they share real-life stories and techniques to power up your business. Good morning, good morning. I am Deb Creer, and I am passionate about giving professionals the tools that they need to make themselves and their businesses as successful as possible. And we've been having a great time in January talking about a lot of subjects that people normally are considering either at the end of the year or the start of the year because they're planning for their business for the year. You know, and, and I'm not talking, folks, you know, we, we, about your New Year's resolutions that we never really get through. You know, we, we diet for maybe a week. You know, those, those people who try to quit smoking, I guess the stat is, you know, they go like a month. You know, all these various things. I'm talking about the things that really, really will make your business more successful because that's what this is all about. So, you know, let me tell you a little bit more about our program today. So as markets set new records and eventually return to more sane levels, the traditional financial media outlets strive to be heard. In order to attract eyeballs for their sponsors, they're seeking to please everyone, always. Traditional news media appears to have lost its objectivity with only a left and a right. What results is a great deal of noise and very little signal. Citizens, investors, and voters need a mechanism to purposely sift through the noise to find the signal. Books like Escaping Oz, Navigating the Crisis, and Escaping Oz and Observer's Reflections facilitate an understanding of key topics so people can ask the right questions. If you don't ask the right questions, you never receive the right answers, and you're simply stuck in the noise. In Is the slogan, M-A-G-A, enough to bring a new prosperity? What is the one thing no one is talking about in the healthcare debate? Will the nation's economic foundation be the basis of the next presidential election? Do Americans understand the difference between freedom of and freedom from? Do they realize they have been unwitting participants in a systematic shift towards a more government control? Holy schmoly, well, that's going to be an awful lot to tackle in an hour, but we're going to really try. And what we're doing is we're talking to the author of those two books about Oz. So please join me in welcoming Jim Mascara to our program today. Mascara, sorry about that. Jim Mascara to our program today. Debbie, thanks a lot for having me on. You know, this really is going to be something that is is so interesting. And as I told you off the air, I'm one of those people that I'm going to call myself an ostrich. I just put my little head down. I work. I really don't pay a lot of attention to the, the overall economics of what's going on in the world. Um, you know, all these various things. And part of that is because of what we mentioned. The, the media is right or the media is left. And the vitriol that has been going on in this country for several years. You know, it's not just this most recent election. Um, you know, that people have just been, I'm right, you're wrong, everything else doesn't matter, you know, all these various things. And of course, what happens is that the, the business situation gets very muddied. So, you know, first tell us why this is something that interests you and, and explain to us, you know, how you got into this. In late 2010, I published my first of three books in the Escaping Oz series. You mentioned the last two. The one, one was published in 2015, and then the latest one was published in the summer of 2017. And one of the things that I stressed in the first book, and, and it is really a stress throughout the three, is what I call the intersection of politics and economics. Mm-hmm. And that's really important because what we've seen, uh, and you've, you've noted it in your introduction, that there is a, a great deal more vitriol in American dialogue today, American discourse. Right. And a lot of that stems from the economic stresses that people feel. And because if you have a healthy economy, and when I say healthy economy, I don't mean necessarily healthy from the standpoint of the numerical figures that you may be, may, may be thrown by the Bureau of Labor Statistics that says, you know, we have 4.1% unemployment and the GDP is this. It really has to be something that's more uniformly um, applied, if you will, to all segments of society. And what you've seen, uh, certainly over the course, I mean, I, I can take this back a long, long way, but even just from the course of, the, let's just say, the start of this, this century, the start of the millennium, you've seen more of that uh, lack of harmony, if you will, mm-hmm. 
among the populace of the United States. And my postulation uh, throughout the three books is that there's an economic foundation to all of it. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, you've, you've used the, you, the, the word Oz in the titles. So do you see Oz as kind of the perfect place where we're all happy, happy, everybody's making lots of money, nobody's sad, you know, and, and, and it's, but it's really not real. Is that kind of why you used Oz as your premise? You know, one of the difficult things in uh, in writing a book is actually coming up with a title. And right. uh, and and when I wrote the first one, I hadn't really envisioned that I would necessarily create a series. But mm-hmm. then it just kind of seemed natural that I would do that. Uh, Oz actually refers to uh, a reference to the wizards that I, I mentioned throughout the course of the books. And those wizards are people within, uh, let's call them institutions like central banks, the United mm-hmm. States, that's a Federal Reserve. You've got... Um, uh, what I'll call wizards in government. And those people uh, to the rest of the population seem like they have all of these great magical powers. And and for your listeners, if you remember the story of the Wizard of Oz, when Dorothy saw the wizard, he was this great omnipotent being. Right, right. There was fire and smoke coming out and his voice just boomed. And I mean, he, and he, and he scared everybody. Right. And so that's how, uh, from, from an economic perspective, we have, treated these wizards again in government and central banks uh but if you re- remember what happened in the wizard of oz story what did toto do he he went around back and he pulled back the curtain mm-hmm. and he revealed the wizard to be what nothing but an ordinary man and right, right. that's what i try to stress within all of the books is that the people that are in places like government and central banks do not have any magical powers they can't sprinkle magic fairy dust over the economy and really many of the things that have occurred uh, particularly since the financial crisis in 2008, have been nothing but a grand experiment, you know, of which we've been, you know, obviously the subjects of. So the the whole theory of Oz is to try to, you know, pull back that veil from the people that we think the wizards that we've asked for our, again, in this case, our economic salvation, that really haven't done that and in many cases have exacerbated a problem. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and that has been something that's always fascinated me. And, and, and it's interesting because I'm, I am not a numbers person. You know, like I said, I, I try to, I, I, it's bad of me, but I try to ignore all of this. But, but you know, it still does, you know, enter my thoughts and, and it should more. I mean, I'll be honest, folks, I need to know more about this and we all need to know more about this. But, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me when someone like the Fed chair sneezes. <laughs> you know? we're, we're like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, the markets tilt this way, t- tilt that way. When a politician, either side, you know, or or you know, presidents of, of foreign countries, you know, leaders, all of these people, when one person says something, it really can have such huge ramifications. And my thought process has always been, you know, those are just kind of these blips, and then it goes back to almost the status quo. Is that correct? That you know, these these people kind of do have this whoop type of of you know, influence. And then everybody goes, okay, you know, let's, let's straighten stuff out. I I would say from the, from the standpoint of, uh, you know, a fed chair making a pronouncement about something, maybe releasing a fed minutes, I would, I would agree with you, but I will tell you that, you know, since 2008, the, the fed and the central banks across the world, where that's the, uh, uh, Bank of Japan, Bank mm-hmm. of England, uh, ECB, uh, all of those institutions have pumped just tremendous amounts. And when I say pumped, I mean, this is money that's being created out of thin air, mm-hmm. have pumped tremendous amounts of money uh, into the economy. But unfortunately, you know, they're the best laid plans. They anticipated that that money would be directed more towards Main Street. Well, in, in fact, it's gone more towards towards Wall Street. Right, and right. and let me say something that I'll, I'll give an anecdote that uh, that I wrote in um in in the book is that we had a we had a Fed chairman by the name of Alan Greenspan. And mm-hmm. for those that know of his personal life, he's married to uh, NBC News correspondent Andrea Mitchell. Right. And. During their courtship, uh, his pro- marriage proposal to her was so undecipherable to her that she had no idea that he was proposing marriage. Now, I, I, I make that, and I actually referenced, a, that, that's actually a, a story that I got uh-huh. from a book called Maestro by Bob Woodward. Mm-hmm. And I, I reference that story because, you know, if if he has such a hard time communicating a marriage proposal to his wife... Imagine what it was like sitting in Congress listening to his pronouncements right. about the economy, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and again, this gets back to that whole 
wizard complex. You know, people just sit there and rapture to, oh, you know, the, the Fed chairman is speaking. Mm-hmm. He must be saying something magical. We need to listen. And the markets are beholden and so forth. So I just think it's very, very important to, again, kind of separate what the capabilities are of people in central banking and government. And again, let's pull the, let's pull that curtain back and understand what we're really looking at. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's interesting that you said that, you know, a lot of things were directed towards Main Street, which is obviously small business owners, and and it went towards the bigger things. And, you know, we're not saying that we shouldn't have the, the big companies of the world and, you know, and, and all of those things. But to me, and this is purely anecdotal, you know, and, and my own type of, of impressions, I'm seeing kind of a trend where people are wanting, it's kind of a dichotomy. I mean, you know, I absolutely love that I can order on Amazon. But, you know, there are times where I will do anything I can to support the small business owner, the brick and mortar, you know, all of those things. And it's it's confusing because, you know, if I really want to save money, I will go to the Amazons, to the Walmarts, to, you know, the, the big behemoths. But then I feel guilty. And I'm like, oh, I really should support small business. And it's got to, you know, I know for many small business owners, it's it's very complicated and, and very tricky to, you know, because the whole way they do business has totally changed. You know, um, how many places anymore really aren't brick and mortar? They're simply online businesses. And that's, you know, that's part of this whole confusion with business owners is, you know, does somebody even want what they can buy and how in the heck do they get in the market and how do they stay in the market? Yeah. And, and after 2008, uh the the banking industry you know we're we're talking about small businesses now the banking industry changed remarkably and in my firm sentinel consulting i assist small businesses with you know general consulting uh, alternative finance and debt mediation and the alternative finance is important because a lot of these small businesses one of the challenges that they face among many others as you know uh, is acquiring capital and because the banking industry changed due to you know regulation and let's say a greater amount of risk aversion uh, it became more challenging for small businesses to acquire capital and what's ironic about this is is when I when you were mentioning earlier and I, I answered with respect to the, the Fed wizards and central bank wizards creating all of this money you know a lot of that money that got created again out of thin air and, and we can we, we can debate the merits of whether even that should happen or not but a lot of that money basically stayed within the banking system it didn't circulate right. so there was a lot of pronouncements that well once the banks central banks did all that there would be this massive hyperinflation because there would be all this money chasing goods and, and and, and so forth. Well, in fact, it didn't materialize. And in, the reality is, is that money circulation or, you know, in economic terms called money velocity has actually been sinking. So what that tells you is even the money that's circulating in the economy doesn't circulate as fast as it once did. Mm-hmm. From a small business perspective, very, very challenging because it makes, you know, their own assessment of their 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 financial prospects even much more difficult. And and that's why you, you see this challenge now for a lot of small businesses trying to acquire capital from banks. And so specialty firms like mine are, are basically trying to match up small business owners with those that might be able to provide them capital. But I would I would just say that uh, in, in my books, I, I'm not anti big business at all. As a matter of fact, uh, Small business is the backbone of the U.S. economy, but all of these companies that you that you reference now were very, very small businesses at one point in time. And so we actually want these small businesses to become large businesses. But what we've actually seen, Deb, in uh, certainly, I would say 2008, 2009, we've actually, and I wrote an article about this, you've actually seen a decline in the number of new business formations and an increase in the number of business deaths. So that's not a very healthy trend. Right. And so what it's done, actually, it's even shifted some of the employment towards the larger firm. So you're not getting kind of that, you know, th- that that organic creation of small businesses that you really should. There's a number of reasons for that. You know, capital acquisition is certainly one of them. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, you know, a lot of the small business owners that I talk to, and we've talked about this multiple times on my program, is they don't set things up correctly to start with. Um, you know, and, and I mean, even from the start of registering with your secretary of state, you know, what type of business are you going to be? All these various things. And I think some of that comes back to the fact that people think, oh, it's easy to do this. I can, I can just start doing business as you know, and and then they maybe you know something happens and and they lose their house. You know, they funded it with 
personal credit cards, all these various things. And you know that's where companies like yours are very helpful because you can walk them through the steps to say, okay, here's how to start. Here's what to do. You know, do you need lines of credit? You know, alternative funding sources. Banks aren't the only places out there to get money if you need money. Um, you know, and, and the nice thing, a lot of small businesses now are service type of industries, so they they don't have inventory, they don't have things like that. But there's still startup costs, you know, and and, and ongoing costs, you know, all sorts of things. So, you know, I think that's where it's so important to small business owners just to remember, hey, you're not out there alone, and don't shut down your business and have a whole bunch of debt when sometimes maybe you could have have fixed things. One of the things I see in my practice, Deb, is that um, there are very key decision points that occur within a business's life cycle that, to me, will forecast what the what the likelihood is of that business surviving. And mm-hmm. uh, I would say three three elemental things that are required uh, for a business to have from the start is to have an attorney, right. to have uh, an accountant, and then to have a financial plan. And what I mean by that is uh, I've seen businesses that really – you know, they think about, okay, here's how I'm going to do my business, the execution of the business. But then they 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 don't necessarily forecast or create a budget about, okay, here's, here's what my here's what my expenses are going to be do, during the course of the year, maybe on a month-by-month basis, mm-hmm. sales expectations, and so forth. And when there's deviation from that, then it, then it sometimes precipitates a financial action on their part which may be very, very adverse to them later. And, right. and again, that's not that's part of having a good financial plan mm-hmm. to get you through year one, two, three, or any particular year. You know, if you're thinking about an expansion, if you're thinking about one, one thing, I also see small businesses doing is they 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 sometimes deviate from what their what I'll call their core competency is, mm-hmm. and maybe expand in areas that they should. Maybe start doing things like investments. Uh, where I've seen small businesses, they have the small business, and then within that same uh, corporate structure, they'll start buying real estate, as an example. Right. Even though their core business has nothing to do with that, mm-hmm. then that real estate becomes uh, a ball and chain, uh, and then it has a financial drag on the rest of the mm-hmm. business. It could impact personal credit scores, business credit scores, and so forth. So very, very important to have a well-thought-out financial plan uh, at any stage of, of a business's life cycle, because those are the things that can tend to derail a business and crater it. And and then the, you know, the backside of that is potential civil litigation due to debts, which I assist right. with that. Um, but, you know, the other side of it is uh, there's unemployment associated with that. You may have had employees and now, mm-hmm. you know, they're not employed. And as I right. mentioned earlier, you've, you've, what, you, what you have right now in this country is is a decline in small business formation relative to business deaths. And again, that's not a healthy trend. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and, and I do see that happening with small businesses where they get in trouble and they use their personal credit card. You know, and I'll raise my hand. I've done that. I mean, you know, I think probably the majority, and again, that's anecdotal, of small business owners do that, Sometimes, especially when we're first starting out because we start with zero. Um, but, you know, it's, it really is one of those things, and as you said, of having a financial plan, and and that goes part and parcel with a business plan. You know, is your product or service seasonal? You know, all of these various things, and, you know, exactly what you said with people diversifying when they shouldn't. You know, how many times have we seen people jump on a bandwagon thinking, oh my gosh, this is the next thing. Um, you mentioned real estate. I mean, you know, I've seen that happen so many times where people think, oh, you know, I because we hear the radio commercials that for just $500, you can you can buy an apartment complex. And I'm like, yeah, right. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I, tell, I had a, a, a political science professor many, <clears throat> many years ago in college that she would look at us and say, Ton Stoffel. And, you know, the first couple of times is the you know, little freshman. We went, oh, you know, and then somebody finally put up their hand and said, what the heck does that mean? There's no and such it, thing as a free lunch. Yes, it is an acronym. And, and there really is no such thing as a free lunch. Whether you're a business owner, you know, whatever, you have to have planned. And that's what we all have to do. And, you know, as I mentioned, I'm the ostrich. I put my little head down in the sand. But, you know, it, it is something that, we all need to know about. We need to know what's going on out there. And, you know, one of the things that you point out is that the economy of a functioning society really only needs about five things. So what are those five things? When I wrote the the, the latest book in the Escaping Oz series, uh, Escaping Oz and Observer's Reflections, I, I, I'm, I'm a very, um, I'm an engineer by degree. Okay. And I try to 
break things down, you know, engineer solve problems, right? And right. so that's that's typically how I approach, you know, writing books, particularly on the nonfiction side. So I, I, I what I did is I broke down the problem into what are the five things that a society needs? And so I created a fictional bazaar. And so in this bazaar, you've got, you know, people selling all, all sorts of goods and services. And so uh, for that bazaar to function, it has to have what I, the two things I mentioned are you have goods, mm-hmm. you have services, and then you have to have something in order for people to exchange those goods and services for, you know, for each other. Mm-hmm. And so uh, with, with, in the absence of something, what would people do? Well, they would barter. And right. so fortunately, we don't do that anymore. And we have something called money. That is, in my estimation, the most important economic invention in history is that, you know, we have some reference point that we can exchange good and services, you know, and that's whether it's face to face. You mentioned earlier about doing things online. We have some unit of money that everybody's confident in that they can exchange value, whether that's goods or services. So those are the, those are three things. And then the other two things that are very, very important is what I'll call uh, civil law and criminal law. Mm-hmm. The civil law means that within that bazaar, within this economy, Everybody, you're going to hold everybody to a standard of what they said they were going to do. So if they're going to deliver a box of oranges to you and that or that orange box is supposed to have 100 oranges and it only has 50, you know, we have a problem. Right. But rather than engaging in fisticuffs to resolve that, you know, we have a we have a civil law, we have contracts and so forth to um, to make sure that both parties do what they said they were going to do. You know, I'm, I'm supposed to receive the oranges, and then once I do, I'm, I'm paying for them. So that's the civil law. The, the criminal law aspect means that I can feel safe in the bazaar that all the goods and services that I'm selling uh, will be there. Nobody's going to steal them, uh, either when I'm, I'm in, my shop is open or o- at overnight. There's no physical threat to bodily harm to me or others. And so those are the five things. You need goods. You need services. You need money, some type of money. You need civil law and you need criminal. When you have all of those five things, you have what I'll call the minimum things required for a society to function well. Mm-hmm. Now, what's happened, and as I, as I state in this last book and Observer's Reflections, is that we as a society have drifted well, well away from that. And what that has entailed is a profusion of laws, rules, and regulations by a central authority and in this case, it can be a, a government on a federal level, state level, local mm-hmm. level that has actually made life much more complicated. Um, it creates um, the, the the possibility for greater corruptive influences in the society because now there's all these different laws that we have to be very careful of. And of course, those of greater means can find ways to either craft a law in in their on you know in their favor, maybe try to skirt around a law. And the best example, Deb, that I give of this is something that's you know very newsworthy right now, and that's the U.S. tax code. Right. Um, the U.S. tax code is a labyrinth uh, of of rules and regulations, basically about sending. I mean, on, on its base level, is is about sending money from your possession over to another a centralized authority, whether it's federal right. or state government. Mm-hmm. And so you got to ask yourself. Why is something that's so elemental so complex? And Mm -hmm. the reason it's so complex is because the U.S. tax code becomes a legislative lever, if you will, for Mm -hmm. individuals, corporations, whoever it is, lobbyists, to try to massage something in their favor, right? And But if you had something very, and it's a very elemental level, if you had something very elemental that said, okay, here's here's how we're going to collect income tax, you know, Mm -hmm. it's going to be in a very, very simplified fashion, then there would be no need to create, you know, this labyrinth that is the right. US tax code. And if and if anybody that's listening has ever done their own taxes and maybe it adds a little complexity to it, you'll see, you know, how there's all of these different, you know, exceptions or exemptions, you oh, know, deductions. I, know. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. And and so again, you, that's why you have to have this high level of expertise to kind of navigate this. And again, as as you become wealthier, you know, and you have more, you know, financial holdings or assets, that whole process becomes more complex, you know, and on mm-hmm. a corporate level, even, you know, to, to another degree. So the more and more of these laws, rules and regulations that we uh, we have, and in fact, we've accepted them because, you know, we have, you know, Congress that, you know, we elect, right, ostensibly, and, mm-hmm. and they're supposed to be following our wishes. Uh, we're actually making things a lot more complex and not necessarily for the better. Right. Well, and I've I spent a couple years as a lobbyist, and and we did primarily state level, and this was back in Colorado, 
And you know, and so I, I you know learned then, and then of course we we see it all the time where the you know as you said the 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 legislator the corporations whoever put these little things in you know to benefit them to benefit their constituents you know all these various things and that's why it gets so muddied and so complicated um you know and, and i can understand them doing that like i said you know i was i was a lobbyist we all want to help our constituents you know we want to help our clients that was obviously what what um a lobbyist was doing but it does make things so incredibly complicated. And then, you know, everything just comes to a screeching halt when, you know, somebody's tiny little pet project didn't get funded. And, it, yeah, it's just gotten so complicated. It makes you wonder what, you know, what the founding fathers would think if they were to, to see what our tax code is. Because I'm sure they probably intended it for it to be, you know, this pretty basic you know, because, you know, they, they got away from England because of taxes. But, um, you know, and, and now it's just so incredibly complicated. And that comes back to the problem the small business owners have. You know, what can we deduct? What can't we deduct? You know, you mentioned having a lawyer as part of your team. I think you got to have a CPA. I mean, you know, that's just the part and parcel with it is knowing all of those various things. And folks, you know, if you have any degree of business success, you can't do your taxes yourself. I mean, <laughs> unless that's what you do for a living. Just bite the bullet and have somebody who knows what they're doing take care of it for you. Right. And, and you know, and, and going into, I guess, the 2018 tax year, obviously, uh, accountants are going to be very, very busy here learning about uh, the, the changes, you know, these revolutionary changes in our tax code. Um but, you know, I'm glad you mentioned the thing about the founding fathers, because one of the things that I talk about in, in Observer's Reflections is that. The founding fathers had a had a vision for uh, for what the country, the republic, let me make more clear how it how it function and look, and it was much more closer to what I was talking about. Those five things that a society really needs, and so the the let's call it the liberty degree that you had as a citizen of the United States has changed remarkably. And 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 so when I hear this discourse on on the media about well, you're either you know you're either on the left, or you're on the right, or Repu- Republican or Democrat. Um, I submit that the political spectrum is actually far, far wider than this little subsegment that they that they're continuing to paint everybody into. And on one end, you have what I'll call an anarchist, and an anarchist th- it doesn't necessarily mean that you're running around burning and looting. Right. An anarchist simply means that you don't believe that there should be any central authority at all. So that's one that's one poll. On the other poll. You have what I call the isms. You know, you have the socialism, communism, fascism, mm-hmm. where you have high, high degrees of centralized control. And so what you have now is we as a society, we as a, as a nation have drifted more towards those isms and away from uh, what the founding fathers originally intended. In order for that to happen, we have to layer more and more of that complexity that we were talking about, the U.S. tax code simply part of it. Um, so, and when that happens, again, it, it affords more of that opportunity for people to always want something from that central authority, either through the tax code or through some other legislation, because they see that as, you know, the, the, the Oz, right? The, the economic mm-hmm. savior. And the problem with that is we've asked government to do so much, uh, not just at the federal level, but beyond that. And, and, and I have a, a numerical, uh, uh, assessment that tells us very, very clearly that we've asked government to do too much. And that's the and that's the federal national debt, the funded debt, which is over twenty trillion dollars. So that tells me that, you know, that that imbalance between, you know, tax collection and what the government actually does has accumulated a, a debt of twenty trillion dollars. On a state level, we can add multiple trillions because of unfunded liabilities uh, with respect to uh, pensions. On the federal level, we may have $100 trillion or more of unfunded liability. So what that tells you is is that, you know, we've asked government to do certain things, and that gets back into something you mentioned earlier about the freedom of and freedom from. So we've asked them to do X, but we haven't funded it to that degree. And, of course, we we couldn't do that because then we'd be paying, um, you know, who knows what our tax liability would be. And we And by the same token, government doesn't ask its citizenry to bear the burden of that taxation because, again, they would be very unpopular and not be elected. So so what you have is this disparity between, you know, what we've asked government to do, what government would certainly willingly continue to do. I and mean, if you ask them to do something, they're going to do more and more and more and more. 
and 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 ask anybody right now that is uh, was registered with the Affordable Care Act when Congress started talking about you know taking that away, you know repeal and replace and so forth. It's very, very unusual for a, a large government program to be taken away. Why? Why? Because, you know, we've gotten used to the wizards in Washington providing something. So, But we also know that there are inherently many flaws in the way the Affordable Care Act was architected. And again, that's part of that, that whole problem of, you know, ask government to do this, but then don't give them the funding to do that. Mm-hmm. And so then you have this debt. And the only reason we're able to do that is because the United States dollar is the reserve currency of the world. Mm -hmm. And so it allows some flexibility um, or, let's say, complete lack of discipline for certain things to happen. But, you know, that will slowly start to change over time. You know, technology is going to be part of it. You know, we've we've used um, the U.S. dollar as a lever in, in foreign policy and geopolitics. And, you know, countries uh, start to catch on to that and, 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 frankly, become tired of that. And then they start to disintermediate the dollar and say, you know, what? we don't need to uh, transact in the dollar anymore. And so let's head in a different direction. And so those are some of the dangers that the, that the nation faces. I mean, they're facing it now, but even it becomes more acute as you go through time. Right. You know, and, and politics aside, other countries are just catching up to the United States is maybe the easiest way to put that, where they're not needing our assistance where they can say, hey, we're going to, you know, form the economic union, you know, whatever it is, and maybe putting things more on a level footing. And and that's what's, you know, that is one of the things that interests me is, you know, when when you have all of these things that happen, and then, of course, when you have, and then putting politics back in, when you have dictatorships and, and things that just totally throw the economies of the world off, um, you know, it, it really is interesting times. Um, you know, but then when we talk about, you know, trillions of dollars of debt, that's where people tune out. I mean, that is just such a gigantic number that I think, you know, we we can't understand it. So we just totally tune out and then we tune out of the whole thing. You know, I laugh and, and say that I'm an ostrich. But part of that is that it's such a complicated process that we just, you know, I'm just going to put my head down and, and it'll take care of itself. Yeah, and and I'll submit to you, and I, what, I've, what I've tried to strive to do in the books is that honestly, it's 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 been made more complicated, but it doesn't need to be as complicated. Right. But the reason that it's easy to tune that out is because, and and I've made this comment about um, our government spending, whether it's you know on on things like healthcare or other or other social programs. Um, let's just use uh, war as an example. You know, uh, there is no, there, there's very little what I'll call, I'll use a, an engineering term, there's very little friction in having to deploy our military all across the world, whether in, you know, police actions, invasions, and so forth, because it's just simply part of the federal budget. There's, there's, there's nothing to prevent um, current deficits. You know, we, we had trillion dollar deficits beginning in 2008. Uh, because of, you know, quote, emergency measures. And that's part of the problem is that there's no there's no regulating lever there that says, you know, uh, well, we don't have a balanced budget amendment. We know that. And so there's nothing actually to prevent Congress or the government just from continuing to spend because they know that if they just if they go into a deficit condition in any given year, well, they'll just issue more debt and people will buy that debt. And Mm -hmm. what's really disturbing, uh, certainly since 2008, is that, yes, the U.S. government has issued all this debt. Yes. In theory, the U.S. government is actually a far greater credit risk now because, you know, now instead of our debt being, you know, 50 percent, 60 percent of our gross domestic product, it's over 100 percent. It's 105 percent. And there have been numerous studies, uh, one in particular from a very famous book called uh, This Time is Different, um, that, that talks about the fact that once once countries get over a certain amount of debt, it becomes very, very perilous, you know, for their economic future. And one, and just in, in conversation with people, I've always said, you know, when, when people talk about, yes, we need to go take the following military actions in said country, I said, what do you think would happen if there was just this referendum, national referendum, and people could vote online or however they were going to do it, that said, okay, we're going to station troops in Iraq for a period of 15 years, and we know we're going to do that, and here's here's our action plan, but it's going to cost us you know, one, two trillion dollars, and we're going to levy a tax, a special tax. Right. Let's call it a My war tax. Bill will be. Yeah, your your special war tax will be levied at, you know, X number of dollars. 
How many Americans would then say, oh, yeah, let's go ahead and do that? I I would submit to you that you would probably find a minority of Americans that would want to do that. And they'd think, well, okay, so why am I spending this money to go do what in in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria? And again, but they don't have to ask those questions now because, again, you have a very frictionless ability to raise this money in the debt markets. But the problem now since 2008 is that they're raising money in the debt markets but you know what sort of interest rate am I getting from buying a ten-year treasury uh, treasury note? You know it's a little over two percent. Well, I mean, how many? I mean, raise your hand if you're comfortable lending money to somebody for ten years, even the government for only two percent, right? And so, what's happened with all of the, this this wizardly action since two thousand eight is they have absolutely destroyed. Uh, savers in this country, and even worse, uh, you know that those pension liabilities that I talked about earlier—that you know, of course, all that you know—the government itself, whether it's on a state or local level, said, "Yeah, you know, you, you go into this pension, buy into this pension, and we're going to we're going to take care of you. We're going to this freedom from something in your future life." And so, what's happened is, oh gosh, we were supposed to make seven or eight percent on this pension money, and now we're not. Now we're only making two percent or three percent. Right. Which means that our unfunded liabilities are growing larger every year, you know, while while we have these low interest rates. So, I mean, the the, the actions of the wizards, particularly with regards to interest rates and this money creation, has absolutely destroyed any notion of saving. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, you you just said something called you you just mentioned money creation, and there's this whole new thing that has come about, and it's it's not new. It per se, as in time frame, because it's it's existed for a while, but it's the whole cryptocurrency thing and and bitcoins and all of that and you know and, and we've seen the the uh, value of bitcoins just totally skyrocket and I think I don't even know what that means. So what is cryptocurrency and and why has it even come about? Cryptocurrency is. Um the, the first notion of this was uh, actually a white paper that was written by a pseudonym, uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, where he wanted to create, uh, let's, let's just call it value, money, mm-hmm. that uh, would be, that would disintermediate uh, b- the banking system, central bank authority, the wizards that I talked about earlier. So he mm-hmm. came up with a scheme uh, using, you know, cryptographic methods, hence the name cryptocurrency, and um did that, and I can't remember what year he published his white paper, and then Bitcoin was born, and it was trading, you know, probably in 2009 for, you know, probably pennies. So you you could exchange maybe a cent or even less than that uh, for a Bitcoin. And so the, the goal of any of these cryptocurrencies is, again, to disintermediate, I mean, and it has some very libertarian roots about it, because now you, um, you you don't have the wizards that you have to be beholden to. Uh, each cryptocurrency has a theoretical limit of the number of units that are going to be created. And um, the technology, the most important thing, I think, for your listeners is to understand the technology that, that sits behind cryptocurrencies, uh, something known as a blockchain, which is basically a, a distributed online ledger. Um, is really going to be the impactful technology. And, and that's what happens a lot of times with innovations is, you know, you'll have some innovation that comes to, to, to fruition, but then there's some underlying technology that is really the crux of the innovation and it evolves over time. And then, you know, sometime in the future, it becomes something else that looks a little different than what you saw originally, but it becomes very impactful and successful. Um, so that's really what's behind a lot of the, uh, the cryptocurrency uh, development. Um, I've written a couple of articles and I'll, I could encourage people to read those articles, uh, that are linked in my, my author site at jimmoscara.com that really talk about, uh, not necessarily, you know, yes, you should invest, no, you shouldn't, but really to kind of gain a, a greater understanding of what, pe- what these cryptocurrencies are, but more importantly than anything else in my estimation is how people are treating them, uh, the original conception of the cryptocurrency Bitcoin was to really function as some exchange of value, right? We, we talked about earlier in that bazaar, right? What's the most important economic invention? Money. So if this is going to function as money, then, uh, Deb, if you're selling something uh, to me, uh, I can exchange this value with you. You know, you can send me whatever it is that you've got on your website. Maybe it's a book. And then I send you some cryptocurrency uh, to a, a, per, a personal wallet that you have, 
Uh, I get my book, you get the money. Again, money that everybody's agreed upon has value, and we just made an exchange. Great, right? Uh, well, what didn't happen in all that? Well, what didn't happen is I didn't give you a credit card. You didn't pay a credit card processor any fee. There wasn't a bank that issued a credit card You know that, that I'm maybe paying a, a yearly fee to. Um, I didn't send you an ACH transaction, so it didn't go through the banking system. Maybe if I was a customer... Um, in another country, I'd say, hey, Deb, um, you know, I don't have U.S. dollars and you know, maybe I'm just dealing in Swiss francs. So I need to wire something so it didn't go through the SWIFT network. So all of those things that you would normally associate with money didn't happen. It, it was literally me sending something to you directly. We exchanged value. There was no wizard in intervention whatsoever. So Obviously, that has a lot of appeal for some people because, again, you've disintermediated, you know, the man, the man, so to speak, and um, you don't have to worry about necessarily that currency being debased because you know they're going to create many more units of it. Mm -hmm. Now, the problem is, is that that exchange that I just mentioned right there uh, universally doesn't happen very much today. So, what I mean by that is that it's not like I can go down to McDonald's and get myself a uh, a Big Mac. And pay with Bitcoin. Right. Um, I can't go down to the uh, the Cadillac dealer and buy my Cadillac CTS with Bitcoin. I can't do any of those things. So mm -hmm. the utility value of these cryptocurrencies right now uh, has some limits to it. Okay, and so uh, part of a larger cycle of some things that are going on right now in the investment markets is this mania, you know, that has been fueled by, again, those, the central bank wizards creating all this extra money and money, once it gets created, it starts trying to chase, you know, it, it goes through these, what I'll call investment cones. You know, sometimes it's real estate, you know, sometimes it's bonds, sometimes it's stocks. Right now we have really so, all of the three. And so we have all this money that's, that's chasing, uh, what's called yield, that they're trying to get some higher interest rates. Because what I mentioned earlier, I can't go to the bank and, and put down money in a CD and expect to get five or seven percent on right. it for a year. Right. Mm -hmm. And so people understand that and they're saying, wow, I don't have enough money saved. I need to I need to chase this yield. And so what has happened with these cryptocurrencies is that there's been this uh, tremendous chase for yield, what I'll call a gold rush, where the people that I talk to and just a lot of the reading that I do and, and I get inundated with uh, emails and, I mean, and solicitations and things that I see online all the time about invest in cryptocurrency. So, so then it becomes, okay, well, the reason I'm getting into this cryptocurrency isn't necessarily because I want to exchange some value with somebody like Deb who's selling me a book. It's because I'm looking to you know, make some money on this, you know, kind of a get-rich-quick scheme. And right. so in 2017 – there's been an avalanche of money. And when I say money, I'm talking about U.S. dollars that has gone into the cryptocurrencies and uh, something like Bitcoin that was worth maybe one Bitcoin was worth four thousand eh, dollars. Let's say around August, September time frame. It just about peaked close to twenty thousand dollars or maybe two, three weeks ago. Uh, the price of Bitcoin today, I believe, as we're having this conversation, might be somewhere south of $12,000. So there's been just tremendous volatility in that. And so so now um, it's a for some people if they consider it an asset. And then my counter to that is, well, it's it's not an asset in this traditional sense that you've bought a stock or a bond. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's undeveloped real estate. It's not a piece of art that has some aesthetic value. Um, so people are kind of have, have kind of changed the the equation from thinking of it solely as, okay, here's a, a medi medium of exchange, this money that we talked about earlier in the bazaar, and now instead it's a speculation, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, with speculation comes wild swings. And so what I tell people about, you know, things like cryptocurrencies is, is there money to be made in it? Has there been a lot of money made by people? Yeah, no question about it. But understand what you're getting into, uh, understand the speculative aspect of it, and even for a lot of people that are um, maybe on paper, what they call cryptocurrency millionaires, because, you know, they bought Bitcoin for a dollar and now it's, mm -hmm. you know, $20,000 or whatever. Well, changing that money back to U.S. dollars is no right. is no easy feat because mm -hmm. a lot of these exchanges, uh, Coinbase is probably the most popular one. They actually limit how much you can convert from Bitcoin to U.S. dollars in a given week. OK, mm -hmm. they put a throttle on that. So. 
this is not like a brokerage account where, you know, if I had, if, if i if I'm looking at my screen right now and I've got an account on an online brokerage and I own, you know, a thousand shares of Amazon, I can't just click a button. And then, you know, a few seconds later, you know, a few minutes later, I'm going to have in my account, the dollar value mm-hmm. of the thousand Amazon shares that I just sold. That's not, that's not Bitcoin. It doesn't, you don't have that same degree of liquidity. Right. So there, you know, for people to go into cryptocurrencies, I would urge uh, a lot of education. You know, you can you can start with both of my articles that I have on there to kind of give you some perspective. But there's a lot of education that needs to take place. Mm-hmm. Well, and as you said, it's only as valuable as somebody else sees it. You know, I could have a million bitcoins, but yeah, if if I can't do anything with it then it's you know totally worthless and 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 i think that's where it's been interesting to watch is people will say oh my gosh i invested and now i have x it's like okay you have x but what can you do with that well so, um, so yeah so, so let me let me add a, a a point there um there are some online merchants uh in fact the, the most famous one of all is uh probably overstock.com and i mean i conducted a a cryptocurrency transaction last month where you know i had a small amount of cryptocurrency i went to overstock.com bought the merchandise and then at the very end when it said how do you want to pay for this there's a button on there that says i want to pay with bitcoin and what? so it it actually you know basically what happens is you uh Overstock.com tells you, okay, you need to transfer from your wallet, you know, X amount of Bitcoin to this address. Okay. Here's the problem with that. And it's not a problem because it's like, it's, it's very similar to what I said earlier. If I was buying a book from you using Bitcoin, I, I, you know, I send you Bitcoin, you give me the merchandise, your book, right? Well, in this particular case, um, they give you a specific address to send it to. If you mess up that address and let's say you sent it to the wrong place, um, and let's say that other place was somebody else's wallet that uh, was un- an unsuspecting recipient of your generosity. You know, you just lost that. You know, right. and and so again, th- that's just some of the mechanics that are in play uh, when you do something with Bitcoin online. But but again, there are merchants out there, and there are you know, they, it, I mean, you you could you could sell you. I mean, if you had a bookstore, or I actually do have a bookstore, mm-hmm. I-, I could set it up to say, hey, I want to accept Bitcoin instead. So. The, the possibilities are there. I guess, again, I just caution people to understand what they're getting into. And, you know, we're in the very, what I'll call nascent stages of cryptocurrencies and, you know, their potential use. But um, I think the other thing with Bitcoin, uh, I, I think it got a little ahead of itself and, and it's been reflected in the pricing recently because the thing that I point out, another thing that I point out in my article is, you know, as easy as Bitcoin was to create, there's nothing to prevent other cryptocurrencies from being created as well right. and, and being right. and being equally useful. So mm-hmm. um, to, to that end, guess what? Now there's more than 1000 cryptocurrencies in existence. And, mm-hmm. and so because of that, um, you could set up, uh, you know, whole mechanisms that that say, hey, you know what? Um, you know, let's say, Deb, you got your bookstore and you say, OK, I'm going to p- accept something called a Deb, a Deb coin, you know, right. and it's a cryptocurrency. And, uh-huh. you know, and people could send that to you. So, again, what I want to convey to people is as long as people agree that there's value, you know, in that unit, when, whether it's Bitcoin, Litecoin, you know, Ethereum, whatever, it doesn't really matter. The, the, but the question is really. How many U.S. dollars right now are you willing to exchange for a Bitcoin, right? right? And so that's really what it comes down to. And one of the things that I, I conclude in in the book, uh, in, in the chapter that talks about cryptocurrencies is, you know, there's nothing in the future unless some, you know, potentially government decree that says, hey, you know what? We can have U.S. dollars circulating. We can have Bitcoins. We can have all of these different things circulating. It's just a matter of, you know, will, will people agree to the exchange of value? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and of course, one of the things, as you were saying, you know, that, that online vendors, you know, some are, are accepting things like that it, because of the wild volatility of the value. You know, you could tell somebody, OK, you're going to buy this chair and it's 100 Bitcoin. Well, in, you know, the, the value swings could make that thousands of dollars difference in a day. And, you know, and, and so that's what gets really strange with it, too. And. So I guess I'll just stick with my green money for a while. Well, and, and not, <laughs> yeah, and as you mentioned, yeah, there's, there's some of that volatility there, which which again kind of creates problems. Um, one thing that I think is really important about uh, about some of these cryptocurrencies, which you know, you and I were speaking off the air about that I have a fictional series, is uh, I actually created again in my fictional series a, a cryptocurrency that I called Diginote, and what I did with that was I, I, I used that 
the fact that technology now would allow, and again, in this fictional account, that's not too far in the future from today, would allow people to really then begin to kind of push away from what they know of, of the United States and say, you know what, I'm, I'm tired of this regulation. I'm tired of your money. We're going to kind of go live in our own ecosystem, and we've kind of, we're going to separate ourselves a little bit more from the United States. And part of the mechanism that allowed them to do that, again, in this fictional account, was this cryptocurrency that I created that I called DigiNote. And, and it really brings a whole bunch of you know, social and economic implications that I make people think about when they're reading this novel series that, you know, hey, you know, some, some of this that he's talking about, while it is you know, a fictional account, it's a novel, it's not really too far-fetched, uh, particularly when you start introducing other technologies into the mix. Let's talk a little bit more about that because you you do have this uh, series of fiction books, and it's it is one of those that you know is very close to what really could be happening. So tell us just a little bit more about those books. The fictional books are centered on a character by the name of Chandler Scott. There's three books in the series right now. The first one is called 2020, which is based on the U.S. presidential election of the year 2020. Imagine, you know, what what we had in 2016. Uh, I take the complexity level up even a little bit more. I add uh, third parties that are actually vying for the presidency in 2020. And when I when I say that, I don't mean, you know, fringe third parties like we see today. I'm talking about real freestanding third parties that actually have a chance to win. So, you know, that gets thrown into the mix. Uh, I throw cyber terror into it because, you know, that's something that's very ever present. And, right. th- and then the protagonist, the main character, is a member of the media. And so the first book kind of takes you into uh, the prelude to the U.S. presidential election of 2020 with, you know, the mixture of politics with third party politics. We got financial crisis. We got cyber terror. Um, then something explosive happens at the end of that book. The second book is called Rebellion which is the Latin word for rebellion. And what that is, is, is how the country reacted to how the, what the president did at the end of the first book. And it brings in more of these, uh, let's call them these, te- let's call them technological separatists, cyber separatists, you know, these people that are kind of pushing back on the government and saying, hey, you know what, we don't, we don't really need all this. We don't really want all this from you. We want to kind of push away. It's got this strong clash between people that want government to do more to protect them from something. Here's that freedom from and others that want that say, you know what? I, I like uh, Jeffersonian ideals here. I just want freedom of, I want freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of expression. And, um, I, you know, I don't need as much from the government. And so that's a lot of the tension that occurs in the second book. And then the third book called division has a map of the United States and it actually shows it kind of split and without giving away too much of the story, it shows what happens when you have, um, let's say, greater separatist or secessionist movements that exist within the United States and how it might start to, again, create tension, how it starts to pull, you know, pulls the country apart in a more in a more profound way with, again, these cyber separatists kind of into the mix as well. So it's a very, very realistic series um, that there's there's some social messages that are transmitted through the characters. Uh, I, I personally think, and, and maybe it's a little bit ahead of its time right now since the first book is called 2020, but uh, when people get into this series, and again, you kind of get into the you know profundity, if you will, of some of the things that are being talked about, um, some of the reviews that I've seen in the first book, you know, some people will tell me, wow, this hits a little too close to home, and I almost get the impression that this could really happen. So, and 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 if that's the impression that people get after reading the first book, then mission accomplished on my part, because that's really the impression that I want to create. It's like, hey, you know what? Um, follow the storyline. It's very entertaining. Uh, you know, hopefully people think it's well-written. It, it's also on audio for those people that don't like to read and just rather listen to books, um, because it's something that, you know, we kind of just need to think about as a society as well. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, you you mentioned the the whole crypt, cyber terror thing. I mean, that is something that is you know more and more coming. You know, and 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 you know, not just with hackers and and things like that, but you know, I'm I'm a big science fiction fan and and things like that. And and but I know that when you know some of the the TV shows when they talk about you know, hey, they've hacked into the Air Force or a NASA launch. I mean, you know, yes, that's fiction, but there is you know there is you know quite a bit of nonfiction that goes into something like that. And, and, you know, the next 20, 30 years, I think are really going to be 
fascinating, interesting, scary, um, you know, all sorts of things. I, I promise people that you will see some cyber activity, uh, particularly within books two and three, that will be somewhat mind-blowing. Um, mm-hmm. and, and they're not necessarily, I mean, some of them are more, you know, complex things where, you know, you're hacking elements of the government and so forth. But others are very, very simple things like cars, you know, things internal to your house. You know, I mean, there's there's more of that that gets talked about in the book. And and again, as it impacts, you know, Chandler Scott and, you know, his his kind of journey through, you know, seeing how the country is evolving. You know, his there's mentors that appear uh, for him throughout this. And so it's it's a very fascinating series, I think, because it, it, it encompasses you know, politics, financial crisis, cyber terror, and the media, which are things that are very salient, you know, in, in society today. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, Jim, we've only got a couple minutes left. So, you know, for our listeners out there who are, you know, like me, they're the ostriches of the world, and we shouldn't be. You know, we need to be paying attention to at least, you know, some level of this. Where do we start? Uh I want to. I would start people with the two books that you mentioned: "Escaping Oz, Navigating the Crisis," "Escaping Oz and Observer's Reflections." And the reason I say that, and obviously, you know, there's there's some self-serving goals there. But you know, in the 2016 election, I think it's fair to say that we had two candidates that neither side was particularly, you know, excited about. Um, and what I would submit to people is that's partly our own fault uh, because we're not demanding more from the candidates that are running. And, and part of that, you know, is the media kind of clouding, you know, some of the some of the basic issues and the elemental issues. And no one ever, you know, demands that. And so you can't demand that unless you know the questions to ask. So right. if you don't want to see a repeat of what you saw in 2016 in the year 2020, I think you better start educating yourself about some of these things. Uh, and again, I, I make these comments on a, on a broad societal level because, you know, politics will impact us whether we like it or not, because, you know, those are the people in Washington, D.C. or, you know, in your case, state capital Atlanta, my, my case, state capital Jefferson City. Um, you know, th- that's that's what we need to be. We need to be more civically minded. So those two books, I think, are very important. If you just want, you know, uh, an enjoyable read that gets, you know, a, a little complex uh, about what the future may hold, uh, you know, the Chandler Scott series is certainly part of that. Great. You know, and and it's interesting because, you know, especially on the the nonfiction side, the Oz books, there are people obviously who were happy with the election and people that were unhappy. Doesn't matter which side you were on. You know, we have all seen that things didn't quite come out the way we thought they were going to. And so, you know, it it is it does behoove us to to learn more about it. And it's funny, you know, I laugh and I say, you know, that the people who are really qualified won't run. They're not going to put themselves, their families, you know, all of those things through it. And part of that is this ostrich thing, you know, this this social apathy, all these various things. So we need to get our heads out of the sand and actually be involved one, you know, one way or the other. Or as you mentioned, other parties, you know, all these various things. But, you know, we shouldn't just be sitting here like lumps on the sand. And, it's, you know, especially as small business owners. I mean, you know, if we want to be successful small business owners, we've got to really, you know, step in and, and be taking action. We, we, we do. And again, I'll just I'll just caution your readers. If you are happy with the 2016 election and its aftermath, then continue, you know, to, as you mentioned, bury your head in the sand and, and not kind of get under not kind of understand the fundamentals and not know how to ask the right questions. If you're happy with that, then, you know, then <laughs> we'll, we'll have the status quo. If you would like to see some change, then begin that, you know, that educational process that I don't know, hopefully I've accomplished to some degree within the first two books, because it'll allow you to uh, um, at least hold your, uh, your political leaders more accountable, certainly much more accountable than we have at this point. And the unfortunate part is, you know, at, at some point we may face a, a more significant crisis than we had in 2008. And that's where you actually, uh, you know, you, you need to be careful about that because, you know, there's, there's greater opportunity for, you know, demagoguery, you know, more, um, more ideology. You know, we, we definitely see a lot of ideology today. And for those that are concerned about, you know, whether my books have any political slant, I can, I can absolutely guarantee you there is nothing political about either of my two nonfiction books. They are very apolitical. They're very factual. They're very objective. And it gets down to the fundamentals. Great, great. Well, one last time, Jim, tell people how they find you and connect with you. 
My author site is at jimmoscara.com. That's J-I-M-M-O-S-Q-U-E-R-A.com. That, that has all my books, and it shows you know where you can buy them. Um, and again, I mentioned they're in print form, ebook form, and also audiobook form. Uh, if you have any questions about uh, small business consulting, alternative finance, my website is sentinelconsulting.biz. That's S-E-N-T-I-N-E-L consulting.biz. Perfect. Well, this really has been very educational, and I promise I'm going to get my head out of the sand. You know, I might not be one of those big leaders, but at least I'll start paying attention to things. And more importantly, I hope that my listeners do, too. So, you know, I am Deb Creer. I've been having a fabulous time talking with Jim Mascara. And until next time, everyone have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Business Power Hour, hosted by Deb Creer. Join us next time for more real-life stories and techniques to power up your business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.